2020 has been an interesting year to say the least. Australia began the year with some of the worst bushfires we have ever experienced, followed by the COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns and state border closures. It's also been a year full of challenges in global geopolitics, with trade challenges and a deteriorating Australia-China relationship, questions over climate commitments, and further across the globe, the President of the United States' refusal to concede in the recent elections. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. For the final episode of the year, I asked the strategists Brendan Nicholson, Anastasia Capetis and Jack Norton to join the podcast to discuss some of the key events of 2020. Well, the world is coming towards the end of an extraordinary year where it's been battered by storms, bushfires and the COVID-19 pandemic. Governments all over the world will be rethinking their perception of threats to their national security and it makes sense for Australia to do the same. Anastasia, how did you see the year? Well, Brendan, almost every adjective about this year that can be possibly used has been used. So it's actually very difficult for me to to sum up this year in particular. But I'd just like to um, underscore the point you made, which is that really what we've been seeing and coming to terms with this year is a bunch of overlapping, deeply systemic crises that have had cascading effects on almost er- every area of life. And what that's done is made everyone, especially governments, reflect about their notions of national security um, and really looking at national security not just as the traditional areas of state-to-state conflict, terrorism and other law enforcement kind of issues, but really looking and zeroing in on social cohesion. How do we maintain social cohesion, social stability um, and well-being in the face of these systemic threats? And I think that um, the climate issue received an enormous kick-along with the bushfires in Australia and bushfires in California virtually simultaneously. Pictures all over the world of aircraft water bombing, massive fires, fire engines sort of fleeing fire fronts that they just couldn't tackle that were just too dangerous and too big and uncontrollable. And casting forward to the end of the year, the, uh, the Bushfires Royal Commission report made a very clear and very strong link between climate change and the intensity of those bushfires. So I think, in fact, possibly more so around the world than in Australia, that's had a, a very strong impact on public perceptions about climate change. I think you're 100% right. If you think about the way that California and Australia are actually perceived, they're actually perceived as almost prosperous havens from a troubled world. And the fact that these parts of the globe are burning up, I think, was hugely shocking um, to the global consciousness. It's one thing for permafrost to be melting in the tundras of Russia. No one lives there and people don't relate to them. But for these most prosperous areas um, and, and happiest areas of the world, you know, in terms of public perception, for them to be going undergoing catastrophic um, bushfires, I think, was deeply shocking and changed people's perceptions, I think, permanently about that, that the climate threat is real and it can touch anybody. I think there's an interesting contrast here in that particularly the Australian fires at the start of the year, we saw this huge response from, you know, school kids protesting on the streets in Europe, holding up 
little home-drawn cards of koalas that were on fire and that sort of thing. Yeah. And the response in Australia, which politically at least was almost devoid of a look at the climate aspect of it in large part, and I think that contrast is something that we're beginning to see more as well at the policy level in recent weeks with the discussions on net zero the fact Australia was denied a slot at the climate conference um, organised by Boris Johnson in the UK because climate ambition and having those targets is being increasingly seen, we don't have a net zero target, a bunch of leading economies do, is being seen as increasingly important. So that's reflected at both the grassroots and now at the policy levels internationally. But in Australia, it seems we're not quite there yet and I think partly because of the fact we've dealt with bushfires, not to the same degree, but, you know, year on year as a population, it's something that's just part of being Australian. A land of fire and flood. Yeah, there's not that kind of necessarily that same shock factor, even though these were, I'm going to use the word, unprecedented. Having that there hasn't really driven the discussion in Australia in quite the same way. But I think it goes well back into that social cohesion factor and the way we see bushfire directly affected the bushfire affected communities rallying together to rebuild and to help each other out i think there's something there that we can probably all draw on a bit more broadly and to some degree i think we did as we started to deal with the next big challenge that hit us this year which was the pandemic look absolutely and i think one of the things about the pandemic was the extent to which it showed up the different approaches around the world. You have a country like the United States, and probably today sometime, they will almost unbelievably reach a death toll of 300,000 people. Well, it's just extraordinary that the most powerful nation the world has ever seen has been deeply divided in its approach and lacking in any strategy to deal with a pandemic. It has been quite extraordinary. It's shown up weaknesses in, in the, the Trump administration, certainly, the, um, the extravagance and um, denial of the president has not helped at all. It's a country that the world probably has looked to since the Second World War for leadership. It just hasn't been provided even within its own borders, and I think it's probably done deep damage to the reputation of the United States. Um, It'll probably take quite a time to recover from. I'm thinking, Anastasia, do you think, obviously there's been a large amount of reputational damage done to the United States from the pandemic, how it's responded or failed to do so. Where does that balance sit if we look at it in great power terms with the damage or otherwise to China's reputation? Mm. We know where, well, we th- the scientists will determine where the disease came from, but it certainly first emerged in Wuhan. Um, and I think there's probably going to be a long memory of that globally as much as state media outlets might try and rewrite that history. Where do these two great powers in our, in our world in 2020 come out? So this is where the politics of the pandemic intersect with the politics of reputation management, of influence, um, of disinformation, and and who has been able to deploy all those forces more effectively. In the case of China, when the the virus first emerged in Wuhan and it was finally acknowledged to be a pandemic, 
one of the first things the CCP did was send down their essentially their communication shock troops to manage public opinion very quickly, um, both on the ground and in broader China, and that that continued a pace. That was a huge government effort, and then more broadly, um, China put great effort into controlling the the, the story about the pandemic globally. Uh, their PPE efforts around the globe were part of that, and the US did them a great favour because, in contrast the US fell apart um, over COVID. COVID was immediately politicised. The disinformation uh, in the US that arose around COVID was huge and on an industrial scale. The virus was very quickly politicised by essentially right-wing forces in the US um, and successfully so um, to the extent that you couldn't have a concerted public response. So in terms of who came out ahead, really it's a bit of a photo finish and I think in the end um, no one came out of it positively. I have seen um, international commentary, especially in places like Eastern Europe, saying things like shows the superiority of this Chinese system, the Russians have been making hay with with that kind of propaganda line as well. Uh, Turkey has done the same, you know, basically saying authoritarianism works and democracy doesn't. So a bit of probably overall a bit of a loss for democracy in the places that need democracy the most. Which in itself is a bit interesting because I think the places that have dealt with the pandemic the best overall, if we look at Taiwan, if we look at New Zealand, if we look at even Australia, are all pretty good examples of vibrant democratic societies. Exactly right, yeah. It just happens that the world's biggest, most powerful democracies have essentially failed in their response to the pandemic. We don't really do a lot of public diplomacy to that effect. We could be amplifying that story internationally, but that's not how we've chosen to operate. Now, we have our conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers here, but nothing like the scale they have them in the United States. No, nothing like the scale. And that's just been a colossal problem for them. It's going to be a problem as they try to roll out the new vaccines. They, th- these new vaccines are going to be difficult to transport. They've got to be made immensely cold or kept immensely cold. Uh, distribution will be, will be difficult and encouraging people to turn up and, and be vaccinated is going to be a problem. This is going to be a, a colossal task for, for Joe Biden and his administration, actually just straightening out the disinformation and the straight-out lies, gathering experts around them, rebuilding confidence in the science and the scientists who've actually pulled off remarkable things in developing a range of vaccines around the world. There'll be a lot of Americans who will not take the vaccine on principle. They will call it a Democrat vaccine. Um, So that's where things are, are going to be at for the kind of the next year. But in terms of the end of this year has also seen other unprecedented activities on the on behalf of the Republican Party when they refused to accept Joe Biden's election victory and prosecuted frivolous lawsuits after frivolous lawsuit through the courts, including the Supreme Court, which got smacked down this week. What's happening there, do you think? Is this permanent? Is this a momentary lapse of reason? I think we'd probably all like to think it's a momentary lapse and that democracy in the United States will return to regular programming Next year, everyone will accept the result and we'll be back to some sort of heyday that we had pre-2016. But I can't see how once you start to cast such doubt on democratic processes and enough people in a populace actually start to believe that a process is rigged or corrupt in some way, 
I don't know how you unscramble that egg. It's really, really, really worrying to me. And I don't know how Joe Biden is going to be able to fix that. And I don't actually know how societally you begin to, you know, short of turning off all social media, uh, you begin to fix that problem. So but to some extent that will continue. But, you know, you look at the example, um, the whole world watched as Trump, you know, put his people into the Supreme Court and into a whole range of other courts. Well, he might well, in his sort of deluded fantasy world, have assumed that the Supreme Court would then find in his favour and, and Texas would be allowed to challenge results in all the other states and a whole stack of other crazy ideas. But that just didn't happen. You know, he could put people on the court, but they, they remain credible legal figures and they tossed out these ludicrous claims. Uh, they, they didn't get a hearing because there was no legal basis for any of them. However, it needs to be noted that the Wisconsin Supreme Court almost ruled in favour of one of these cases this week. It was just because the Republicans didn't have a majority on that court. So it does need to be kept in mind that US legal institutions are not impervious. The Supreme Court is perhaps a little bit different than the state Supreme Courts. But what a lot of commentary is kind of saying is that really the U for Australia, we need to be worried about US is maybe one election away from becoming an autocracy. Do you think that claim holds any water? I'd like to think not. But I just, I certainly think as Australia, we need to be cognizant of the fact that there is a risk there and what weight our voice has need to be promoting democracy, democratic values and basic things like the accepting of election results in whatever way we can and trying to do what we can to make sure that these processes stay relatively functional form. So how should we do that? Because at the, as, as, of, uh, as of now, we haven't said anything publicly. I don't know what representations have been made privately. I think this perhaps is one of those things that you do have to do privately to begin with, make your concerns known. But to be honest, I don't know if there's anything Australia could do that would really be hugely impactful when it comes to domestic politics in the US. It has a life of its own and it will continue to unfold the way it's going to unfold, essentially regardless of anything Australia does. Um, the guy had quite an interesting discussion with a, one of our colleagues the other day who was saying, look, you can't blame Trump on this. There are deep divisions in the United States and they've just been exposed by the fact that Trump was elected and, and, and the way he's behaved. Now, I actually disagree with that quite substantially because Certainly, there have been deep divisions in the United States, massive inequalities in, in wealth and uh, education and, uh, and access to health services and a whole lot of other things. There's no doubt about that. But I think that was recognised by people like Obama who tried to help fix it with Obamacare. I don't think that Trump, well, Trump certainly has not been a, a passive president trying to fix this stuff up. He's actually weaponized it in every way possible. And, and the nastiness with which he has done it and the risks that he's brought to the world by unraveling agreements, by pulling the United States out of all sorts of bodies around the world and, and the antagonism that he's built up in the United States in areas like, like race in particular is just extraordinary. So, so he's not just been a passive force. He's been a, a very 
aggressive force willing to harness absolutely any unhealthy aspect of United States life and fire it off at his opponents. And I think that's probably doing going to have done lasting damage to America. But look, I can, you know, I'm old enough to remember things like the, you know, the Kent State killings when National Guards shot students and, and a range of other things and the, the, the riots over American presence in Vietnam. And you, at any one of those, the Cuban Missile Crisis, at any one of those occasions, you could have thought, well, the United States has reached a zenith and it's on a decline and it didn't happen. There's a resilience there in the institutions. As Anastasia made the point that the, with the courts being stacked, you can get dangerously close to very bad, unhealthy decisions. But the institutions in the United States are pretty strong. I think there was, there was more capacity in, in the institutions to fight back and try and hold the country together. And I think that hopefully that is what's going to happen. Social media has played an absolutely crucial role in this whole thing because it's a, a vehicle for paranoia and, and misinformation along with a lot of interesting information. I think that a lot of people get more discerning, which is the one hope of salvation out of it all. I think, look, I'm very pessimistic about that, but um, one of the things that I think has developed since 2016 is a particular kind of way of doing electoral politics in the US, uh, which involves a massive disinformation ecosystem. And we say unprecedented, but we've never actually really seen anything like this in the world, that propaganda systems that were around in Europe in the 20s and 30s are nothing on what this looks like today in the United States includes social media, absolutely includes traditional media like Fox News and the other cable networks that have emerged like OANN uh, and Newsmax. It involves um, what some commentators call hate radio, which is this huge network of right-wing radio, and that's been around for sort of 30 years. This kind of disinformation ecosystem, propaganda system, has been emerging for a very, very, very long time. And if you're a political scientist looking at the effects of propaganda um, in places around the world, they're very difficult to recover from. There's nothing that has changed that's this propaganda ecosystem that will remain next year. It's difficult to see how that propaganda system will be unpicked. Looking ahead, I mean, we may well have a federal election in Australia second half of next year. The government said it's going to be 2022, but it could be second half of 2021. Making those points you made about social media, that information ecosystem, we see echoes of that in Australia. We see the same conspiracy theories that have propagated in the United States. They're adapted slightly and then applied here. The audience seems to be much smaller, but we still have issues like backbench government MPs sharing essentially anti-vax or pandemic, so to speak, material on their official Absolutely. Facebook We're channels. Here. We're certainly not immune, but will we follow the same path or is there something about Australian politics? Is it compulsory voting? Are we, I don't know. Is there something that will stop us devolving to the point of debate that it's been reached in America at the moment? Um, I think our electoral systems are definitely stronger. There's no question we have compulsory and preferential voting. We have on-paper ballots. Uh, we, and we have um, a, a non-partisan election commission 
um, which these are huge boons for us. But in terms of disinformation, we can't, we can't be complacent at all. You know, we need st- uh, you know, a strong uh, public broadcasting system that's a source of truth, a source of shared and agreed truth. That's something we definitely need to, to build up, I think, um, to deal with this tide of global disinformation. We have, a, you know, QAnon is, is gaining real purchase, you know, in Australia. So it's not that we're sort of more uh, cynical or less credulous at all, but we haven't had just the same industrial-scale disinformation ecosystem operate in Australia as it does in the United States. We have elements of it, but it's not quite as powerful. But also, we've, we've had our crazies, and I'd probably like to name them here, building up political parties, putting vast numbers of millions of dollars into... Can't imagine them. who you'd be talking about, and, and and then seeing them get annihilated in an election. I think we are probably a bit more discerning than than the United States electorate seems to be. A, a really worrying thing is that you know for a time it looked like, and some of the commentators were saying that Donald Trump might have won the election. You know, even after four years of, of chaos and straight out lies and playing fast and loose with the truth, being caught out constantly, it just seemed to make no impact at all on a very large number of Americans who voted for him. And, and that's got to do with the hyperpartisanship um, in the US as well. Uh, we have a little bit of that here also. I don't think we, again, we can't be too complacent. In the last federal election, there was all sorts of disinformation online about you know the Labor Party was going to take your car and, and force you to replace it with an electric vehicle uh, and all those kinds of stuff, and people believe them. And so, I, again, I don't think we can be complacent at all, unfortunately. And, look, as we're nearing the end of this podcast, I think that we should actually discuss the pain in the Brereton report, Australia's pain. This is a report by a very uh, experienced judge after a four-year investigation into allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan, he's concluded, he and his team, that members of Australian Special Forces committed war crimes on a, on a fairly large scale. 25 soldiers stand accused of murdering 39 unarmed Afghans, civilians or prisoners and cruelly treating two others. Um, now, some of the soldiers were still serving in the ADF when that report came out. But this is something that's going to have repercussions in Australia, I think, for a long time as prosecutions are, are launched and either succeed or fail. It's going to leave a lot of bitterness and a lot of questions about the war in Afghanistan, what actually happened and, and why we were there. Yeah, I think we should probably point out as well that the time of these incidents were alleged to have happened is what largely between about 2009 and 2013. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Obviously, this has been a fairly exhaustive process in terms of the inquiry, but we're also talking about incidents that there may well be great difficulty in coming up with prosecutable evidence for. So where do we see any trials are obviously going to drag on for for years and years in all likelihood? So where do we see this, this process actually going? I'm not by any stretch of the imagination um, a defence lawyer, but the Brereton report does provide a lot of evidence for trial. I think for at least for some of the cases, even if not all claims. So these, I think, yes, definitely will have uh, long and drawn out trials of you know some of the major major allegations. Yeah, they have the Brereton's team 
have been gathering information very comprehensively. And a lot of the, one of the things in Australia's favour is that while there have been attempts to cover up similar episodes in the United States and, and, and in Britain, Donald Trump even pardoned a person who'd been identified as, as a war criminal by members of his own unit. In Australia, the, this was all exposed by members of the Australian army, some of whom had witnessed things, some of whom have admitted carrying out acts that would be considered war crimes, and it was exposed in an inquiry launched by um, the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force um, on the instructions of the Chief of the Australian Defence Force. And that a lot of that did, impetus for that did come from some very good reporting in Australian media as well. Yes, that was, that, that was happening in parallel. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that you know, the kind of um, national security role that good public interest journalism can play and the fact that some of those journalists suffered for that and there was a threat of prosecution also hanging over the heads of these journalists as well, whose work was absolutely and demonstrably in the public interest. I think that's something Australia's going to have to grapple with going forward. I think recently we've seen some more reaction to the release of the Burton Report. We saw a now infamous tweet come from the Chinese Foreign Ministry's deputy spokesman. I think I've heard the words rock bottom used for Australia's relationship with China, I don't know how many times in the last six to eight to ten months. A lot of the public commentary stems and sits around the call for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. I think even at the time, the reaction to that, we sort of thought, oh, well, how can things get worse? Just, just today, we've heard that Australian coal has essentially now been completely banned after being sort of sat in limbo for the last several months. Where is that going in 2021? I'm going to make a bold prediction and say that both countries don't know where it's going in 2021. I would agree. That there's no grand plan um, and that both countries don't have a particular strategy as yet for, for dealing with the relationship in the long term. From China's point of view, though, this is going to be governed by self-interest. There'll be things that they can do without from Australia. There'll be things they don't want to do without. From Australia, they want a good solid supply of, of iron ore, for instance, which is a, a very big income earner for Australia. Well, at the moment, iron ore seems to be essentially the only export from Australia that has not been affected. Well, well, that's right. Now, if they start getting their iron ore from other places, then Australia is going to be in some economic strife. You know, we're just going to have to work on finding other markets, but finding markets as big as the Chinese market. Uh, may not be easy, but it's also likely that the Chinese are going to get some reaction within China because the supplies that they get from Australia are things like milk powder and things like that. Uh, they know are healthy. They're popular with the Chinese population. Australian wine appears to be very popular with the Chinese population. A whole range of other things. Um, if they can get them from elsewhere easily and of the same quality, then the Chinese may never come back to Australia, but I think it's quite likely they will actually decide that they're going to suffer some economic damage from this as well. Just as a, also a little bit of context here, um, one of the signature policies of Xi Jinping is an economic policy of self-reliance. So in that context as well, there's a real push to, um, for China to, to you know, really abandon its dependence on exports in a whole range of ways. Semiconductors is the most famous one, but there are whole other, other areas as well. 
And it seems to have backfired a little bit anyway with countries around the world raising a glass of Australian wine in solidarity um, with Australia and a whole bunch of other countries coming out and saying we just really dislike this bullying attitude. It's not winning China any friends in Europe, for example, um, where it would like to win more. So maybe there will be a period of reflection in Beijing and, and, a, and a change of uh, nuance at least um, in the new year. It will be interesting to see because I think in some ways both Beijing and Canberra have painted themselves into a corner a little bit and for either side to now be seen to be backing down would be a huge loss. So where we go to from here, which I think goes back to your point, Anastasia, about there not being a grand strategy on either side about where we go. It's a problem with brinksmanship. Well, here's hoping for a better year next year. So in terms of highlights and lowlights. Just briefly, um, the most difficult thing is trying to find a highlight, but I think um, looking at the response of global publics to all of these challenges from the pandemic um, to climate change to kind of various government political crises, um, crises in democracy, It's been amazing to see people rallying around problem solving at the local state levels, um, finding that community leadership. So I think that's been really positive. Um, In terms of a low light, um, I think the abandonment by one party in America uh, of the democratic principle is a serious low light, especially for Australia. And next year? So next year I will be watching uh, what different countries are doing about disinformation. So if you look at the end of this year, um, there's been a whole bunch of uh, antitrust cases um, started in the US um, and investigations into the big social media platforms, really looking at their social role and trying to mitigate the kinds of threats to the political system that we've seen emanating out of those platforms. I'll be watching that. Um, For me, in terms of next year, starting at the back first, I do really want to see where things go in the Australia-China relationship, what happens in that space, because I just cannot see a way out of the pickle that we're in at the moment. Uh, Perhaps what other democracies might come to Australia's side or not, uh, and whether there'll be any backdowns on on either side. Well, look, for myself, one of the, I think, very important developments in this year was the world's reaction, and it was different all over the world, to the pandemic. But I think one of the things that is going to come across very, very strongly is that some countries are going to see dealing with a global emergency like this as a bit of a dry run and a a moderately, relatively safe run for dealing with global climate change. And I think that we've sort of realised, largely through mistakes that have been made, but also through some of the some of the positives, like cooperation on vaccines across the world and things like that, that the world there is a certain level of cohesion. I think there's been a greater understanding out of 2020 um, of the impact of climate change and the need to do something about it. I think we're going to see under a Biden administration activity in the United States. I think that'll there'll be something similar is happening already in, in Europe. Countries like China, I suspect, will see this as an opportunity, particularly to take advantage of their manufacturing capabilities and, uh, and I think being an authoritarian regime makes it easier to impose policies. So I think we're going to possibly see some movement there. I think on the, on the downside, the degradation of this 
marvellous power that sort of has kept the world stable or helped it out of two world wars, the United States. Just the damage that's been wrought there, I think, is is awful. And I, I think that through the next year, we'll just have to see how the Biden administration recovers. One thing we didn't re- mention was the Iran nuclear deal, which is uh, very important to, you know, in terms of the future stability of the Middle East. Will that get reheated, renegotiated? Also, climate change. Um, We've seen a real acceleration of some big and powerful forces in the economy, in politics, shift towards urgent action on climate change. I think we're going to see it accelerate next year. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. It's been a fun year. And that's a wrap on Policy, Guns and Money for 2020. We look forward to bringing you new episodes and more exciting guests in 2021. Thanks for listening.